and welcome to the Artsy Podcast, where three editors take you around the art world, quite literally uh, this episode. I'm your host, Isaac Kaplan, joined from Hong Kong by art market editor, Anita Louis Sussman. Hi, Isaac. And deputy editor, Alex Forbes. Hey, Isaac. Thanks for uh, joining us, both of you. I know the time difference means we're, we're in different days of the week, but, but uh, glad, glad you could make it. So this week, we're going to be talking a little bit about Art Basel in Hong Kong, which is one of the premier fairs on the art world calendar. And since we have both of you who've actually seen it, Alex, maybe can you give us a lay of the land? What, what's happening there? Yeah, the fifth edition of Art Basel in Hong Kong opened here on uh, Tuesday. The The public opening is actually today, uh, Thursday. There's um, 242 galleries from 34 countries participating this year. Um, a number of new participants um, from both Europe, Asia, um, as well as, as the U.S. actually. And it's it's been interesting. I was here last year as well. Um, and from from even year to year, the development of this fair um, and particularly the kind of infrastructure around it. I mean, I think, you know, you wouldn't necessarily notice um, massive differences in the fair itself, although I think we'll get into that a little bit uh, where, where there are some key developments in a bit, but really kind of the the infrastructure around the fair, the number of ancillary events, the the kind of attendance um, from around the world has now really reached a point where um, this fair is drawing, you know, a, 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 I would say equal attention to our Basel's fairs in Basel and Miami Beach. So that's why uh, your your Vernissage report was titled uh, "The Art Basel in Hong Kong Completes the Art World Pivot to Asia." Is that sort of what you meant? That it's really sort of feels like uh, it's it's now firmly established. Yeah, I mean, I think over the past decade, you've seen people placing more and more attention on um, Asia and the Asian market. There's obviously been a lot of collectors that are developed here. Uh, as particularly mainland China has grown rapidly. Um, now we're seeing similar growth in um, Southeast Asian countries uh, as actually you know, China ships their factories and outsources their factories to Southeast Asia uh, in much the same way that the U.S. Uh, did to China over, over the past um, 20 years or so. You know, but what's what's been interesting here is that, you know, for a while, I think a lot of galleries were just seeing it as uh, a place to come and make money. They're, you know, developing collectors that can spend a much higher sum than your average um, American, uh, never mind European, uh, would on a daily basis. But now, you know, I, I think the, the Hong Kong Fair and and this part of the world is seeing kind of equal attention um, on on all sides. And, you know, you have more and more galleries opening up shop here or or having a kind of robust um, Asia strategy. Um, you know, Pace just opened a place in, in Seoul. They're expanding to a new building in Hong Kong uh, that's going to have, uh, I think it's a 24-story building, and as many as half of the floors are going to be dedicated to art galleries, which is pretty amazing. It's this uh, kind of lifestyle high-rise with uh, restaurants, art galleries, um, and luxury shops. And so what you're seeing is, you know, whereas this, uh, you know, developing Asian collectors, having a presence in Asia, being at Art Basel in Hong Kong was at one point, um, you know, not necessarily a, a novelty, but a, a new thing um, for many galleries and uh, and something they were experimenting with. Now I think it, it is seen as fairly essential to having a diversified collector base, uh, growing your program, 
and and helping to support your artists. Obviously, you know that has a lot to do with private museums here that that we can talk about. But it has just become you know entrenched as part of the art world infrastructure. And Anna, you know, this kind of reminds me of how you we, we were chatting uh, before the show, and you sort of mentioned that. Uh, this this incredible statistic that China's apparently creating one uh, billionaire every three days. I mean, I, I got to imagine that's having some impact uh, on the market. Absolutely. Um, it's, yeah, Asia as a whole, but led by China is generating uh, one new billionaire every three days. Um, that's according to a survey of nearly 1,400 billionaires by PricewaterhouseCoopers and UBS. Um, UBS, as you know, is a big uh, participant in the art world, and um, that's a big part of their uh, wealth management and investment um, strategy. And uh, you definitely see that with people um, selling kind of bigger ticket items. That was something um, Alex had mentioned. I spoke to a gallery that was saying, you know, their sales had ranged from 20000 for smaller pieces uh, to $3 million for some of the pieces they um, had sold, and that was only on uh, the second day. You know, one thing I heard from many galleries when I was chatting with them, and this speaks to what Alex had just said about the development of a really robust art infrastructure, is that this year um, they were really uh, pleased with the sophistication of the collectors who were in the booths with with the questions they were asking, with the level of knowledge they brought. Um, you know, they would mention a more obscure artist in their booth and the person would nod and say, oh, yes, of course, I know that person. And everyone said that was, you know, making it just a much more rewarding experience because the conversations they were able to have uh, were much more interesting. And they felt like the, um, you know, the, the collector base as a whole had just really done a lot of learning. Um, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for learning and education, the more museums, the more galleries there are. Um, and it seems like the collectors have really taken those opportunities up and we're bringing that knowledge and that enthusiasm to the fair. Yeah, I mean, I think that to Anna's point, there was a time at which kind of uh, galleries and dealers were fairly dismissive of, of Asian collectors as kind of um, new and entering the market, not having a clue about uh, contemporary art, which uh, now looks uh, kind of ridiculous. Um, you know, I no offense to my uh, countrymen in America, but I would argue that you know a lot of the collectors here have a much more sophisticated um, conceptual understanding of art practice today um, than a lot of American collectors do, and their their sp- the speed at which they're learning is just unbelievable. You know that obviously comes also with tremendous buying power. So you can have, um, as Anna was saying, you know many sales in the in the low millions. Um, I was talking to. Um, Brett Gorvey, who used to be the president of uh, Christie's and is now uh, part of the newly formed partnership of Levy Gorvey. And uh, he was saying that, you know, one of the works on their stand is a $18 million Roy Lichtenstein. And if you're at a certain level of, of wealth, that also can be an, an entry point of sorts um, to buying truly large format works. And he said he's seen, you know, people go from uh, starting to buy at that level or, you know, much lower. I think the, the lowest entry points in their booth was a, a Richter for $575,000. So um, still quite a lot of money, but, um, but seeing people accelerate from that uh, to buying things in the in the hundred and fifty hundred and eighty million dollar range and above, and I think that you know that was taken by the art world for some time to just 
um, mean that people were throwing around a lot of cash. Um, but what has been astonishing over the past few years is that it's really been coupled with and bolstered by um, a serious level of education um, and an eagerness and, and enthusiasm to learn more. And looking at China more broadly, how how does, say, the market or even art environment in Hong Kong differ from, from Beijing, where, Alex, I know you, you just were? So it's a little bit different than mainland China, whether that's uh, Beijing or Shanghai, have their own um, particular markets, but in much the same way that, um, you know, New York or, or particularly London serve as a kind of um, transit point to an entire region, a, a city through which uh, much of that region's capital is uh, moves through and is managed in Hong Kong has that kind of international dynamism of, of, of those two cities as well. Um, up in Beijing, uh, where I, I was up there for the Gallery Weekend Beijing, which is the first time they've had that event, um, you know, it's much more of an artist city. There are uh, a number of good galleries there, um, and there were some great shows over that weekend. It was a kind of a nice uh, amuse-bouche to our Basel in Hong Kong. But uh, but that remains kind of uh, more of an artist city. There are some um, pretty formidable private museums being built there, and a strong and a strong market. But a lot of the buying activity, I would say, um, still happens down here. Yeah, Alex, I'm kind of curious also how um, you know government policy in in China is maybe impacting the market, like through capital controls, which I know were were introduced or going to be introduced. Yeah, it's definitely been something that's uh, been on dealers' minds in particular. Um, as I was mentioning before, you know, China's been kind of the one of the the major driving market for this fair and this market over the past um, few years. And following particularly the the U.S. election, um, President Xi Jinping clamped down uh, with further capital controls on the amount of money that um, people from mainland China can move outside of the country um, to do things like like by art, um, there have been massive um, capital outflows <clears throat> from the country over recent years into alternative assets like real estate and and also fine art. You know, it's, it's one of the most uh, efficient ways to store a lot of money is uh, is a hundred and eighty million dollar painting. Um, but nonetheless, uh, while there are you know ostensibly some ways to get around it, um, those have been tightening. Um, in not only the, the amount of, of money that you can um, move outside the country at any one time um, and the reporting that has to be done, but also the extent to which um, these things are enforced. I think that's, that's always a, um, a, a particular thing about China itself is that um, the tides of enforcement on regulations like this can go up and down. Um, and right now is a, is a particularly tight time for this issue. Um, that said, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the the Southeast Asian market, um, the Korean market, the Japanese market are all becoming kind of uh, extremely vibrant and um, are contributing uh, in, in large part to the to the market in in Hong Kong at this point too. So I think it's you know it's not something where you know it's something directly happening in China. Um, can be the the single answer to what happens at the market in our Basel in Hong Kong or or for Hong Kong galleries, uh, but it is a is a significant contributing factor and something we'll definitely want to keep an eye on. Yeah, and sort of zooming back further out and looking at the the market as a whole. Um, while you guys are in uh, China, the Art Market 2017 report, which was uh, done by Claire McAndrews, formerly at TAFOF, 
uh, emerged. And Anna, you've been covering that for us this week. What are some sort of the key takeaways? Right. Well, this was the first year that <clears throat> Dr. McAndrews has done the report on behalf of Art Basel and UBS. Um, as you mentioned, she was formerly with Tefaf and she did the report there for, um, I think, five, a, a number of years. She's um, been an arts economist uh, for, I think she said, 15 years when we spoke. So she moved over to Art Basel. Um, she used a number of similar data sources, I think, so that she could have uh, comparable numbers um, from the same kind of reports that she's done earlier. But she was able to get a lot more information uh, from dealers through a survey, um, you know, perhaps because Art Basel was pushing out the survey more heavily to their participants. Um, so her, the top line takeaway is that overall sales for the, the global art market fell by 11% last year from 2015 uh, to 2016 down to $56.6 um, And a big part of that drop was uh, through auction sales in the U.S., um, which fell pretty heavily, especially at the very high end of the market. Um, that's something that's largely been attributed to political and economic uncertainty. Um, you know, it makes sense that when you're not sure if your uh, the work that you're going to consign is going to fetch a, a great price, you don't want to have that um, failure be publicly recorded. Um, you'd rather maybe conduct a transaction on the private dealer market. And so they did also find that um, the share of the dealer market rose by about three percentage points. It's now 57%. And that's notable because for most of the time that um, Claire's been doing the report, uh, it was usually around half and half and it kind of fluctuated um, half dealer sales, half auction sales. Um, but this year it shifted more notably over to the dealer market Yet I'm curious, uh, was that also found in the TAFOF report, which is being done by someone else this year? Absolutely. Um, it was done by someone else this year, a finance professor uh, from the Netherlands named Rachel Pownell. She found a similar trend with respect to the shift to the dealer market. I think the shift she found was a little bit more dramatic based on her numbers. Um, what was interesting is that her overall figures were a little bit we're in the other direction. So she found a slight increase in overall sales. Um, and her new methodology actually found a, an overall value of the art market that was about a third less than what had previously been estimated uh, by Claire using her different methodology. So Claire's been getting a lot of questions about that. And I think she finds them kind of annoying. Um, she just knows her own methodology and I think doesn't want to comment on you know, the work of one of her peers. But hers uh, brought together a lot of different data sources. And one thing she was really excited about was getting some more granular detail um, from dealers. And also um, with the participation of UBS, they did a survey of high net worth individuals. Um, and she got a lot more insight into their attitudes and behaviors around fine art collecting. Yeah, from my understanding, one of the key differences between the two reports is um, Claire takes a slightly more expansive view on um, what a dealer might be, whereas Rachel, the author of the TAFAF report, um, kind of narrows in on this government data. Um, TAFAF also stuck to um, one auction database, that's the, the ArtNet price database, which is quite comprehensive, but Claire supplements her auction data with information directly from the auction houses themselves and also um, t I think tends to use multiple although I know you'll know better than I for for this particular report 
um, to fill in some of the blanks where, you know, you have uh, small micro-regional auction houses um, that might not be reporting data or, or might not even be um, fully accounted for in, um, in government kind of listing data in order to capture that value as well. The one thing it doesn't include, though, which I thought was actually really interesting when she mentioned it in the uh, in releasing the report, is um, private to private or like peer to peer sales. So, say I'm a collector and I have art in a uh, a storage locker uh, somewhere, and and I'm selling it to a friend of mine. Uh, that's that's really hard to to know it's taking place. Um, but she said that that kind of stuff, and I, I would assume that probably also has would include some. Uh, dealer to dealer stuff that happens um, in storage facilities as well that that's not accounted for in the report. So there there is this you know while while I think a lot of people like to poke um, many holes in these reports, that's a kind of interesting one in trying to figure out, um, especially when more and more of the art market is going private, um, that there is this potential sea of value that that isn't even captured in in these estimates. And Anna, one one thing that I thought was really interesting is you wrote a, a piece asking um, if if rising inequality is is good or bad for the art market, um, because that was a theme you saw in this year's uh, report by Dr. McAndrew. You know, where did you sort of identify this in the report, and and what did you find? Well, she has a whole chapter, as I mentioned, on um, global wealth, the distribution of wealth. You know, a lot of it's coming out of emerging markets. Um, There's also still, I think, the largest number of high net worth individuals are in the U.S. Um, And, you know, she raises the question, I mean, obviously, in the short term, you can say, well, lots more wealthy people means uh, lots more art collectors and people with the disposable income to, to buy one of these, you know, one or more, many more of these um, luxury <laughs> items. But, um, you know, the, if you have buying power concentrated in the hands of uh, just a very few extremely wealthy people, um, and especially at the very top end, you know, that that's, appears to be happening already, um, it means that the market is much more vulnerable to uh, whatever is happening in their lives. So if you have people feeling uncertain about, um, you know, the, the political and economic environment, they may hold their most prized works from auction, as we discussed, and that can send the entire auction industry down, you know, by double digits. Um, likewise, there was another key statistic that's kind of the counterpoint there, which is that um, dealers with turnover um, above 50 million, their sales advance the most year over year by something like 19%. And so I think that indicates, you know, you have to say, again, a handful of people who have these very, very, um, you know, unique and special works that they wanted to sell. By moving over to the private market, they were able to boost the turnover of just like a handful of dealers. Um, you know, and so she has a line in her report where she said the concentration of values and spending in a narrow segment of the art market puts the market at risk of becoming polarized and creates prices out of tune with fundamental values and the scope of middle and upper middle class consumers who are critical in giving depth to the market and supporting the entire infrastructure on which it is based. 
Um, you know, and I, we've talked about this a lot at Artsy of just needing, you know, a, a broader class of collectors who are interested in um, looking at emerging artists at, um, you know, helping support younger galleries, um, because without them, you don't ever get to a mid-career artist or an established artist um, if that infrastructure is not supported. And I would say in the U.S., this is maybe more critical than ever since a lot of the funding um, for the arts community is at risk uh, with the budget proposal from the new president. Um, you know, just needing a, a private collector base that's really excited and enthusiastic about supporting newer artists, um, you know, because otherwise we don't, we don't have contemporary art. Well, and, and, and key in that as well is, is not just new artists, but but artists in their mid-career and mm-hmm. in, in the middle of their markets yeah. as well. I think one of the things that I thought this report, uh, one of the ways I thought it really succeeded was um, in, I think, likely due to the involvement of Art Basel. I know this is something that they've been thinking about a lot. Um, Claire was able to to meet with a number of dealers at, at great length, um, kind of on background um, they're not, you know, quoted in the report, but she said it, it definitely influenced um, her findings quite a bit, and really get this picture that there is a, a kind of willowing out in the middle. So while it's, you know, it's it's exciting, I guess, and and convenient to throw around a, a big number like fifty six point six billion, um, that top line number really kind of doesn't say much about the realities um, for most dealers and the, how that affects um, artists and their practices. Um, and so I think it's it's getting a little bit more nuanced, and I'm I'm excited to see how this report over the next <clears throat> few years really develops in allowing us to get a better understanding and more nuanced understanding of um, what's affecting um, art dealers' lives and their ability to support their their artists. I think that you know if you look at the landscape um, and the number of uh, small and mid-sized galleries closing or having uh, profitability issues. Um, it's something that's going to remain at the at the forefront of the art world's attention for the next few years. Um, and something that I'm not sure is in the report itself, but that came out of a discussion I had with Claire um, during our interview, was she pointed to uh, the number of self-made millionaires um, in Asia and in other emerging markets. Um, and she noted that, you know, their tastes and preferences tend to lean more towards artists of their generation. You know, it's not confirmed, but she said based on her observations of how people buy, um, you know, typically younger collectors tend to gravitate more towards contemporary artists who are speaking to, you know, issues that they uh, feel are relevant to their lives. Um, So she thought, you know, with that kind of demographic shift in the overall, you know, high net worth population, you might see more support for um, artists and galleries at the lower and middle end of the market. Um, You know, a, a brand new millionaire, you know, might not necessarily want to start with a super blue chip, you know, seven figure work, but might be interested in finding someone who's talking to issues of her, his generation, um, you know, in her, his local economy. So that's one potential way that you could see some of the newer wealth being created, being actually more supportive of the lower end of the market, which is, I think, where everyone's really concerned about how vulnerable that is. All right. Well, I know you guys have a fair to get to, so I'll let you go. Thanks to Anna and Alex for joining us this week. See you next time. Our 
producer this week, as always, Abigail Kane, and the intro music is by Broke for Free.